1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we track your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the third of the series where Professor Mark Andrejevic deep dives into the issues of face recognition software. But first, here's news of racist vandalism. Up. The Buni Gurti Gurwama and Bini Gura peoples have lived in the Jukan rock shelters in the Pilbara region of Western Australia for over 46,000 years, including through the last ice age. During Reconciliation Week, Rio Tinto blew the two oldest cave systems up. For comparison, the Buddhist statues destroyed by the Taliban were 1500 years old. The city of Palmyra, destroyed by ISIL, was over 4,000 years old. The Egyptian sphinx damaged by Napoleon is around 4,500 years old. And the World Heritage-listed Lascaux caves in France are just 17,000 years old. The Jukan rock shelters were nearly three times as old, over 46,000 years. The multinational mining corporation Rio Tinto deliberately placed explosives on one of the oldest human habitations in the world, a heritage site of infinite value to the indigenous people and to scientists, historians, and all humanity, and detonated them. The caves are next door to a huge iron ore deposit Rio Tinto has been mining. The corporation didn't warn the traditional owners, which limited their ability to lobby the government and gather popular support in the media. Rio Tinto bought the site in 2003 for iron ore mining and had the site studied by archaeologists. In 2008, they employed Dr Michael Slack for a new survey. He advised them the sites were at least 20,000 years old. Rio Tinto asked for ministerial consent to destroy the caves in 2013 under an old state law passed in 1972, the Aboriginal Heritage Act, that was supposedly to protect Aboriginal heritage, but has only ever been used to destroy it. Aboriginal people were only counted in a census and given the right to vote in Australia just four years before, in 1968. The Western Australian state law doesn't allow for any reversal of permission in the light of further information. The company had assured the Bunigoti Guruama and Binigora peoples that they had no intention to destroy the caves and allowed archaeologists to remove thousands of ancient artefacts. Archaeologists working on the site in 2014 discovered that it was actually over 46,000 years old, more than twice what had been thought. They found a 4,000-year-old belt made of plaited human hair, the DNA of which matches that of the Bunigirti, Gumera and Binigora peoples. They found a 28,000-year-old kangaroo bone sharpened into a tool. Archaeologist Michael Slack had found Australia's oldest grinding and pounding stones at the site. There were flaked stone tools and bones from many Ice Age animals, some of them burned by fire. There are what may be the oldest stone-carved faces in human history. Rock art depicts animals that lived during the Ice Age. Dr Slack and his colleagues report... Says the excavations provided new insights into the way of life for the earliest human populations, revealing the diversity and complexity of late Pleistocene toolkits and the timing of tool use. The site's significance could not be overstated, and the other rock shelters in the area were recommended for further exploration. In 2015, the Buni Gonti Gorama and Bini Gura peoples were granted native title over the area. Just over a week before the May blast, the Bunigoti Gonara and Binigura peoples asked Rio Tinto for access to the caves in July this year to celebrate National Aboriginal and Islanders Day Observance Committee, NAIDOC Week, and were shocked to be told explosives had already been laid. When they begged the company not to detonate them, Rio Tinto told them the explosive charges could not be removed safely. The Bunigoti Gomera and Binigora peoples say they begged the Western Australian Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ben Wyatt, to intervene and he refused. He denies the conversation took place. His full title is the Minister for Finance, Energy and Aboriginal Affairs and he's also the State Treasurer in a state where mining is the biggest business. By an amazing coincidence, the Federal Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken Wyatt, is a second cousin of this Western Australian Minister for Finance, Energy and Aboriginal Affairs, Ben Wyatt. Two Wyatts, two Ministers for Indigenous Affairs. Ken is Federal Coalition, while Ben is State Labor. Fortescue medals. The mining company owned by the same Andrew Forrest that's been profiting from misery from his in-due cashless welfare card, in 2018 sought permission under the same law to destroy a 23,000-year-old heritage site just 30 kilometres from the Jukun Gorge. In that case, there were some administrative errors that allowed the traditional owners to persuade the federal government to intervene and stop the vandalism. Rio Tinto released a statement saying sorry for the distress we have caused, which is not the same as apologising for the act of vandalism itself, and have failed to promise not to destroy the other ancient sites in their care. As Charlton Heston put it in Planet of the Apes, We finally really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! God damn you! COVID tracked. As restaurants and bars in Australia reopen, they're being asked to keep a paper list of customer contact details to help contact tracing in case someone tests positive for COVID-19. In Auckland, New Zealand, a woman reported that she'd been stalked by a man who worked at a Subway restaurant who used the contact details collected by the restaurant to try and contact her on Instagram, Facebook and by text message. She's worried that he'd go further and come by her home because he also had her address. The employer has been suspended. Subway have put out a statement promising to move to an electronic contact tracing form that will only be used by government contact tracing authorities. There's room here for regulation of the privacy of these lists. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia... On the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Face recognition in the pandemic. Mark Andrejevic is Professor of Media Studies in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University. I spoke to him by Skype and continued our conversation by asking him about trust in authority and the COVID Safe app. It seems to me that the authorities are telling us that we should just trust them when the Clearview
2: leak shows that they were all lying to us. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a long history of, and, and not limited to Australia, of the public being lied to in the name of its security. I do think, again, it's an issue of if... This technology is going to be treated as legitimate, it's going to be really important to engage in in an informed public discussion about its potential impact on, you know, civil rights and democracy in a country like Australia. Uh, and, And I do think in this era of what might we call it, an enthusiasm for the gimmickry of technological solutionism, it's very easy to imagine ways in which the technology could solve all kinds of problems. More thought needs to be going into the ways in which the technology can actually create a whole host of problems that we may not have anticipated about its use. And more considered deliberation needs to be put into the technology before implementing it on a widespread basis. Really thinking about the types of limitations we want and how it can be used, restrictions on its possible use in, in certain contexts and restrictions on how the data is handled and prevention of its being repurposed for in, in a variety of ways of the, the so-called function creep that is associated with so much digital information collection. It feels like we live in a world now where we implement these technologies very quickly on a very widespread level because they seem to make a particular type of promise. They're quite powerful in relation to their cost. And then down the road, we find ourselves dealing with the pathologies that they inflict on us. So think of social media, Facebook. I, I don't think Facebook spread so widely. Zuckerberg, you know, didn't and many of the folks involved didn't really think down the road about the possible pathological consequences it could have. And now we're thinking about them, but it's, in a sense, it would have been useful to think about these before the, the widespread implementation of the technology and its development. I do believe that Facebook
1: is suing Clearview for the violation of its terms and conditions. So at least it's a few organizations are looking into the illegality of what's happened there.
2: Yes, that's right. And, and it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, because there was a there was a legal case uh, that just uh, came down a few months ago um, that indi- and it, it, it might go to further courts but it indicated that and this was this was a case that was being pursued by academic researchers who were using data that they were scraping from social media platforms precisely in order to hold these platforms accountable for the forms of discrimination that might take place on the platforms. Uh, and, um, and the question was, w- were they doing something illegal criminally because they were violating the terms of service of the company? So the c- company can implement any terms of service it wants. The, c- the, the question is how legally binding are those? You know, if, if Facebook says, um, you know, you can't do this on our platform, Facebook doesn't carry the force of law, right? They can, they can say anything they want. You know, you can't, you can't be, I don't know, over the age of 50 and be on our platform. They could say that, but is it legally enforceable? Uh, and the, the verdict was that it wasn't a criminal scrape data off of Facebook. I think that still leaves the door open to, it could be, you know, civil offense could be, uh, there could be economic damages for it. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question because we do, on the one hand, um, we don't want information that's being put on Facebook to uh, be able to be repurposed in the way that A- Clearview AI was doing, clearly in violation of the expectations uh, of, of the people who are on Facebook. At the same time, we also don't want to give uh, these platforms the power to kind of unilaterally make into law any terms of service that they want because we know what their terms of service are, right? You know, Facebook says, you know, uh, and a lot of these platforms, you know, we reserve the right to, um, actually, I'm not sure what the current Facebook uh, terms of use are, but think of all of the apps that say things like, um, you know, we have the right to use your likeness in any way we want forever in any form of technology now or ever invented. Um, And so we don't want to give the platforms the power to kind of legislate uh, what they're able to do. Uh, so it, it becomes as a society, we really need to make these decisions, uh, you know, decide what's, you know, what's illegal. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we could probably make a pretty strong case for making it criminally Uh, liable to take images of people, biometric information, identifying information about themselves that they make available in one context, even if it's publicly available, and then repurposing it for the use of an app that would have potentially socially pathological consequences, the ability of anybody who has it to ID anybody else at a distance. So I think, again, as a society, we've got to think about the regulatory systems that we want in place to govern the power of these technologies.
1: We do already have copyright laws over photos that say that you can't use someone else's photo to make money without permission of the person who took the photo. That's copyright law around the world right now.
2: Ah, so, so you're thinking there might be a cause of action for copyright infringement on the part of Clearview AI because they're making money off of this app. I hadn't thought about that. In intellectual, I hadn't thought about an intellectual property case. And again, I don't know why when you put it out there publicly... You're right. You don't lose copyright just because you publicly distribute your images. That's that's true. And I don't know where copyright lies, right? Would, would the copyright be, again, here would be interesting to talk to lawyers, but my understanding is the copyright would lie with the person who took the photograph. So, So if it's a photo that you took, you'd have the copyright. But if it's a photo that somebody else took, presumably, then they would have the copyright in it. When it comes to your image, there's another set of legislation about the use, use of your likeness to make money, you know, that governs the, you know, I, I can't make a t-shirt with Arnold Schwarzenegger's face on it and uh, without licensing that. So, but that generally applies to people whose faces are considered to, they're considered to have a, a kind of proprietary interest in their likeness. But there might be that would be very interesting to figure out the extent to which that's now applicable to all of us to the extent that we're all being data mined for value. I, I don't know that those might be interesting potential sites for a legal cause of action against a company like Clearview AI.
1: And then there's the weird stuff, like there's there was a story about a Russian artist using face recognition.
2: Is this the guy on the on the trains who was he, he, um, he created his own facial recognition app and he and he used the basically the Russian equivalent of Facebook. And he'd go on the trains and he'd take pictures of people and then he'd find out who they were and he'd link the image on the train that he took of them with with what he was able to find out about them online. I think that's the project you're talking yes. about. Yes, that's it. yeah, that that was yeah, that was several years ago and it was a kind of early demonstration of the power of existing social media platforms to kind of reverse engineer people's faces. <laughs> once you once you developed a system that could link a photo that you took on the train to publicly available images on a social media platform, then you could find out who those images belong to and what the background information available about those people. I think that points out the world that we live in now where the technology is, in the sense, the capabilities of the technology are colliding, expectations and social understandings. In ways that force us to really engage with the questions that these raise. What does it mean now that it's possible to, to do something that was just technologically, you know, even a couple of decades ago, just technologically almost unthinkable <laughs> to have it now be available on, a, on an app that you can install on your phone. I guess it's really in keeping with a lot of the technological developments we're facing, which is these things are transforming society so fast in ways that we haven't developed either social norms or institutional regulations, restrictions. And so we're kind of in that free-for-all moment. And you know, companies like Clearview AI, it really feels like a free-for-all. Hey, I can do this. I'm going to create an app and you know raise a lot of money and use it for all kinds of purposes that people may well not have wanted, uh, certainly didn't expect and likely do not want their images to be used for. Yeah, we've got to develop a society that can keep up with the potentially pathological consequences of the technology that we're developing. And we're not doing a great job at the moment.
1: What are your views on the rollout in Australia and around the world of contact tracing apps that don't seem to really connect with contact tracing?
2: (laughs) I mean, I think my main view is that they've received so much more attention than the other elements that are necessary to manage the virus. And that's a really interesting symptom, I think, of our attempt to solve everything with technology these days. Most of the literature that I've seen on this, and I'm not a health expert, so I'm, I'm just going what I've seen in terms of the widespread coverage, is that for a variety of reasons, although you know contact tracing apps can in certain contexts be very useful supplement to human contact tracing, human contact tracing is, is really the basis, combined with uh, widespread testing for managing the spread of the virus once you've reached a point where it seems like through social distancing measures uh, and, and other restrictions, the spread is become more controlled. How do you then, when you move to attempting to get back to normalcy, address the fact that there are going to be outbreaks? How do you quickly track down those outbreaks, manage them? It seems like widespread testing combined with human contact tracing is the main mechanism, and that the app contact tracing can, in in some instances, aid in the recall and, and collection. It can have, you know, also, just like human contact tracing, it's also going to have its own inaccuracies. It's, uh, depending on the app, my understanding is, is uh, the Australian app collects all of the potential contacts that one has, even if they're shorter than the amount of exposure to Necessary, but but then it gives the contact tracers those contacts that fall within the designated parameters. You know the amount of time that establishes a a potential contact and the proximity. But of course, contact tracing apps can register proximity where there's very little risk is in because the Bluetooth signal, for example, can travel through some walls. So you may be separated by a wall that's a physical barrier that could stop the spread of the virus, but a positive contact would be registered. And, you know, then again, that's something that has to be tracked down by the human contact tracers. In any case, my take on it from what I've seen is that the app can potentially be a useful supplement, but it shouldn't be treated as the main response or answer to the types of concerns around management of the virus. And what I've seen of the Australian app, you know, it looks like the way that it's set up has been very attentive to privacy concerns in the sense that it follows the model of not collecting location information and storing the data locally on the user's phone up until the point when that person is diagnosed with the virus and then is asked to share that data. And so the person has control at any moment of the use of that app. And, and you know, this is also the issue, I suppose, in the relationship between human contact tracing and Automated contact tracing, if you don't have your phone on, if you leave it in the car, if you've got your Bluetooth off, all of these can affect the accuracy of the app. But the user does have the ability to control that at any given time, right? So they can control whether they've they've got the app on, they can control whether they've turned on Bluetooth, you know, those things. And they can control whether or not they share their data when they're requested to do so. Hopefully, if management goes well of the virus, it would be only a very small fraction of the people who use the app who would actually be requested to share the data, right? Because it would only be once you've tested positive. So if we can keep those positive tests down, that restricts the number of people who end up being asked to share the data, and you know, restricts the amount of data that's going to be collected about individuals. My understanding is that the you know the legal enabling framework for the for the app is going to is going to make it. Illegal to use that data for any other purpose than contact tracing, uh, and that it will make that data. The requirement will be that it be destroyed once it's no longer need, needed for contact tracing. So, those look to me like reasonable privacy protecting measures. There, as in any data collection process, there are always points of concerns about security of the data, the handling of the data. But this looks to me, in the what the app does in the context of the current condition. It looks reasonable in the Australian context as a model. There are even more privacy-protecting models that are decentralized that don't require sharing the data with authorities at any point, but simply allow users of the app to send a notification when they've been diagnosed to other users of the app uh, with whom they may have come into contact in an encrypted fashion so that they don't know who they're sending the information to. But but once they indicate that they've tested positive, then the notification would be sent automatically to the phones with the encrypted IDs that have come into contact with them. So there it's possible to come up with an even more privacy protecting model. That of, of course doesn't assist human contact tracers. So so it's a set of trade-offs. But you know I, I think the overall point is While the tech can be useful, it's not a standalone solution and we shouldn't be treating it as such. And I think what we really need is a kind of concerted response that brings together all of the tools that we've got. And, you know, I think we've got to avoid the kind of over-reliance on uh, tech solutionism. But I don't know. At the same time, I want to see all the tools used to help manage the spread of the virus.
1: That was part three of Professor Mark Andrejevic talking about face recognition software in the pandemic. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash Wolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio
0: Science is fun